Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. and welcome to this week's show in which we meet a researcher who's working to understand slow landslides. Plus we'll find out what worms can teach us about the wriggly problem of reproducibility. This is the Nature Podcast for August the 17th 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Landslides can devastate communities and claim lives. The ground itself becomes mobile, carrying with it huge amounts of potentially destructive energy. But the image you probably have in your head of huge chunks of land collapsing into houses and roads isn't what landslides always look like. There are also landslides known as slow landslides. Slow landslides are landslides that a human can walk away from without a fear of being overcome by the slide. This is William Schultz, who's a researcher with the U.S. Geological Survey Landslide Hazards Program in Denver, Colorado. Slow landslides may not sound like much cause for concern. After all, their maximum speed is just a couple of metres per year. But they can cause serious damage and be hard to detect. What's more, slow landslides don't always stay slow. In fact, William explained to me that all landslides start off slow, whether or not we spot that part of their evolution. In 1994, there was a landslide observed above this community of several hundred people in coastal California um, that was moving quite slowly, you know, as in less than inches per week. During the subsequent winter rainy season, Um, that landslide accelerated catastrophically and and destroyed 
multiple homes. Luckily, that slow movement had been observed, so uh, people were evacuated before that happened. Um, and, and that observation was because a road crossed the landslide area. Uh, unfortunately, in 2005, a landslide occurred in the exact same location and killed 10 people. In this case, no slow movement was observed leading up to it because there was no longer a road crossing, it was a natural hillside, so uh, no one essentially was really paying attention. It's tragedies like this that researchers like William hope to avoid in the future. This week, Nature is running a feature that looks in-depth at slow landslide research. And so I spoke with William to find out what the work is like. He told me that studying landslides isn't exactly like lab work. I've oftentimes been inside landslides as well, gone down holes in landslides that have been bored uh, in landslides. That's one way that uh, geologists will study the uh, internal uh, mechanisms of landslides. And that can be quite disconcerting, especially in, when the landslide is actively moving. So that can be quite frightening. Going inside a landslide seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> yes, doesn't it? What work is particularly underway right now to try and understand slow landslides better? So a lot of research is directed towards better understanding characteristics of faults. What controls the fault strength? Because strengths of earth materials are, are very complex um, and, and change through time and change under different conditions. And if I can understand why the faults on this landslide strengthen or something, um, then in that same sort of material on the other side of the planet, we can say, well, this material will probably strengthen when a landslide occurs, and therefore, you know, the landslide is, is likely to move slowly. What kind of advances in how we measure landslides have taken place over the last few years, few decades? Well, there, there have been a great deal of advances, first for measurements we can make, on and in a landslide. We have very, very inexpensive sensors and field computers. However, remote sensing or data that's obtained remotely rather than going onto the landslide itself is, is also a, a very significant advance that uh, we've seen in the, the last few decades. Whether it's radar from space or the ground or an airplane or laser distance measurements, um, things of that nature, uh, to better understand landslides and compare data that we've obtained you know, multiple times uh, from these remote methods and understand how the landscape is, is changing. It sounds like there are so many factors that influence how a landslide accelerates or evolves. Is it something that we are now able to predict to some extent or is there still a lot of guesswork? To some extent, yes, um, but in very simplistic cases. Materials are so variable, and since they can change significantly by adding or subtracting small components, a little bit of clay or a little more sand or something like that, can change behavior dramatically and in ways that we can't necessarily predict now. Um, so we can't, we're getting better at saying, well, this much rainfall or this material will do this or that. We can drill holes in landslides and obtain the materials, or we can go down in those holes and, and look at the materials and say, well, we've got a great characterization, but you have a great characterization right there at that point. It can be dramatically different just a few meters away. We really need to make some advances there to be able to uh, better forecast landslides. Working on this, does it still have an impact on you? Or does researching it mean that you're, I guess, more removed from the human consequences that these landslides can cause. To me, um, 
those sorts of things never stop hitting home and reminding me why I'm in this business. And, and to me, it's frankly to try to save people's lives. That was William Schultz. For more on slow landslides, make sure to read the feature in this week's Nature. Find it online at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come later in the show, climate science in the US receives another blow from the government. And stars that blow up are more diverse than expected. But now for a quick look at two new studies. It's time for this week's research highlights. Everyone who's looked in a mirror knows that light can bounce off things. But we're less used to light bouncing off light. Particle physicists at the LHC were accelerating lead ions, which makes them emit light. The aim of the experiment was to smash the ions into each other, but sometimes they missed. This gave physicists a chance to watch light scattering off light instead. The researchers spotted a grand total of 13 possible light scatters out of 4 billion collision attempts. This is the first time light has been seen doing this at high energies. Read that paper in Nature Physics. Many birds migrate to wait out Europe's cold winters in sunny sub-Saharan Africa. To see how they find their way, researchers played a trick on some reed warblers in a town in Russia. They put them in an enclosure and watched which direction they tried to fly in, southwest. Then the researchers faked the direction of the Earth's magnetic field, mimicking what it would be in Scotland. The birds now tried to fly southeast, as if they were setting off from Scotland. The researchers concluded that the birds were using the position of the stars, as well as the Earth's magnetic field, to figure out their flight path. Not bad for a bird brain. That paper's in Current Biology. Next, reporter Jeff Marsh has been finding out about three researchers who've been making strenuous efforts to reproduce each other's results. Gordon Lithgow works at the Buck Institute for Ageing and spends lots of his time working with tiny roundworms called Cenorhabditis. You might have heard of one species of these worms called C. elegans. Oh, uh, the worms are fantastic because they are a a simple animal that that age, and we believe they age just like humans age, uh, but they age very rapidly. So their ageing is such that they only live about 15 to 20 days uh, for most of the worm species that we work with. They're not much to look at. They're basically see-through and grow to about a millimetre in length. But because of their very short lifespans, experiments covering their whole lives can be done and dusted in under a month. And it was also the first organism that genes were discovered that determined lifespan. So back in the late 80s, Tom Johnson discovered a mutation in a gene he called age one, which increased the lifespan by 70, 70%. And that was really a a dramatic discovery that changed the way that we think about ageing. So if genes could lengthen lifespan, presumably, Gordon and others thought, so could compounds and drugs. So back in 2000, we published a paper in Science, uh, which was probably the first paper in a mainstream journal, suggesting that drug-like molecules could extend the lifespan of an animal. And it got a lot of attention back then, but uh, unfortunately, uh, some other scientists were unable to replicate that, that result. And that, that got us interested in this whole idea that, that some, some experiments don't replicate between labs. And that's uh, obviously a, a deep concern. And, you know, we, we still believe that, uh, that those compounds were having a, an effect, but, but we couldn't explain to other scientists how to, how to see that. 
There could be any number of reasons why something as complex as lifespan might vary from lab to lab, and several experiments over the years were failing to have their results replicated. In an effort to strengthen the results of such ageing studies, in 2013, the National Institute of Ageing, a part of the National Institutes of Health, funded a project called the Sinorhabditis Intervention Testing Programme. Its first aim was to test ageing interventions across a genetic range of worms. It was also decided that these experiments should be carried out across three different labs, Gordon Lithgow's, who you've just heard, and two other independent ageing researchers, Patrick Phillips and Monica Driscoll. Here's Patrick. When we study lab organisms, frequently we just study one genetic strain at a time. And so what people are finding is that when you move from one genetic background to another, sometimes the things that you found in one experiment don't reproduce across another one because of genetic differences. And so our study is really intended to look for things and responses that are robust across these genetic backgrounds. Every experiment that we did was automatically reproduced uh, simultaneously in three different labs, and so that we could address both the influence of genetic background and all other possible sources of experimental um, error at the same time, so that when we came out with a conclusion, we could be very, very confident that it was robust both to genetic background and the other uh, possible sources of reproducibility, which have been something of an issue in the field. So in an effort to isolate the effects of the genetic backgrounds of the worms, the three labs set to work standardising their protocols and tried to get all of their experiments working exactly the same. But it became clear very quickly that there were several sources of variation that they hadn't counted on. You know, the three labs used different microscopes and some of the microscopes had hotter lights than others. Um, perhaps the most ridiculous one was that we, when we, I first got the data and analyzed it, I saw that one lab, the worms lived several days longer and it made no sense to me. What, what had we done wrong? And it turned out that their lab was used to scoring age from the first day of adulthood and the other labs were using the day that the eggs were laid and so that is the first day of life and so that was a very easy thing to fix but um, sort of ridiculous that even at that level we weren't recording the data correctly uh, according to what our understanding was just because different labs have different ways of thinking about it. Eventually, after many long phone calls and teleconferences, the three different labs did manage to get their protocols aligned, and as a result, the worms' lifespans began to match across the labs. Having eliminated all the experimental differences they could find, they started to hit upon some interesting biological insights. Here's Gordon again. Some strains of worms age in different modes, like they, they, they seem to either have a short-lived mode or a long-lived mode, um, irrespective of the fact that we were stand, we had standardised this protocol. So there, there's something out there we don't know about yet, the dark matter of ageing, where any particular cohort can be in a long-lived mode or a short-lived mode. So that was, that was weird and interesting and we don't have an explanation for. An important new insight into the weird world of worm biology. But now that the labs were all in sync, they could also start to see some interesting things about how various compounds were affecting the worms' lifespans. We also found that some compounds were absolutely rock-steady, robust, reproducible, worked in every case, in every genetic background in all three labs. And then we found compounds that weren't quite like that. They, did, they didn't work in certain genetic backgrounds or they were just hyper-variable. They, they seemed to give really um, variable results uh, in a way that we, we can't explain. 
There is an argument for leaving the variability between different labs working on aging research in order to weed out the compounds that are robust enough to shine through different experiments with different protocols and reagents. But even if you did want to standardize everyone's experiments perfectly, there's a limit to how well you can do that. There's really only so much you can do. I mean, if you think about every single variable from, you know, from the, the elevation you, you happen to be at on, on the earth or the, the lights in the lab and the quality of the light and the, the various temperatures that the experiments are experiencing, you know, biology is kind of messy that way. It's, it's difficult to control absolutely everything. So what does all this mean? Should all the labs around the world be on the phone to each other, rigorously standardising their protocols to be exactly in line with one another? Here's Gordon for some final thoughts. For me, I realised that we, we weren't reporting enough information on the kinds of experiments we're doing. We just simply weren't writing enough information down on the conditions in which we, we undertook the experiments. And now we document everything we can think of and there's temperature probes beside every single agar plate that contain the worms and we're, we're constantly jotting things down so uh, it's just a level of detail that I think is required in order to then convey to other scientists what you've actually done. That was Gordon Lithgow and Patrick Phillips talking with reporter Jeff Marsh. Gordon and Patrick have written a comment piece with the head of the third lab, Monica Driscoll. Give it a read at nature.com forward slash news. Time now for this week's news chat and on the line from Washington, D.C., we've got Nature's U.S. Bureau Chief, Lauren Morello. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Adam. Now, this past week, Trump has, in a way, been reiterating his distance from climate science. What's he up to now? Over the weekend, the news broke that the Trump administration has decided to disband um, an advisory committee that was trying to make sure that a big climate report that comes out every couple of years on um, the science of climate change, but also projects how it'll affect various aspects of life in the United States. So Trump told all the members of that committee that he wasn't going to renew the charter of the committee, which uh, expired on August 20th. So basically, it's just kind of disappeared overnight. How far back does the history of this committee go? How long has it been about? So it's only two years old, but the people who are on it say it's been really useful and it's um, it's really helped them take the findings of this uh periodic national climate assessment and apply them to real life and make sure that they're prepared for the effects of climate change. So where does this leave the report now that this committee has been disbanded? Scientists who have been working on this report, who are just waiting for it, have been worried that the Trump administration is going to basically meddle with its conclusions. There's a report on the state of climate science that feeds into this bigger national report on the impacts of climate change. Um, And that science report has been undergoing a final review by political appointees at various science agencies. Um, And they were supposed to finish that review on August 18th. So the director of the program that's in charge of this report says everything's still on track. But I think people are kind of waiting with bated breath. And the fact that this advisory committee um, that has to do with the overall national climate assessment has been disbanded is making people a little nervous. What people are we talking about? Who's actually waiting for this report and who would use its findings? The report has a wide variety of uses. So first of all, people who are waiting for it include just the general climate science community. 
But various federal agencies actually use the conclusions of the report to help them with their planning. Like, for example, um, under President Obama, the Transportation Department was taking uh, likely effects of climate change over the next couple of decades and planning various transportation projects. Um, The report's also really uh, designed to be useful to business and industry, and then also to local and state governments. And when I say local and state governments, um, it includes people who manage water supplies, who want to get a handle on how rain or snowfall patterns in their area might change. And, you know, for businesses, for example, there are, you know, farmers or big agribusinesses who want to have an idea about how temperature and precipitation trends are going to change because that would affect their crops. And getting rid of this committee isn't a standalone event. How does it fit into other moves from the Trump administration on science and the environment? I think overall it's fair to say at this point that the administration has let a lot of science jobs just wither by attrition. They're not filling various posts. Trump doesn't have a science advisor. The science division of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House has been basically empty for a while now. And then also the administration is moving to disband some advisory committees. And then finally, you see some appointments to various government science posts that Uh, practicing scientists, I think, find questionable. Um, For example, the Trump administration just named somebody to be the top scientist at the Department of Agriculture, who's actually not a scientist at all, has no scientific training. Let's take a break from these uh, science dramas on Earth and look further out into space. Uh, There's news of type 1A supernovas and that scientists may have somehow misjudged them. Before that, what actually is a type 1A supernova and why do they matter? Okay, so supernovas is just a fancy name for exploding star. And type 1A supernova are just a variety or a flavor of those exploding stars. The reason that they matter is that scientists have found that this particular type of supernova is really consistently bright. They call them uh, standard candles. And basically, because these things are so bright, they act like cosmic mileposts. Scientists can measure distances in space relative to these supernovas. So these cosmic mileposts were used to prove that the universe is expanding at an ever-increasing rate, which in turn seems to confirm the idea that there's tons of dark energy in the universe, and altogether those discoveries won the Nobel Prize in 2011. So these things are a big deal. How standard were they actually thought to be? Did we think they were all basically identical? The writer of our news story, I think, put it in a really nice way that astronomers basically thought these things came off of a cosmic assembly line, that they formed the same way and they were pretty uniformly bright. But over the past couple of years, people have started to doubt this. And what's the latest on this? Is there a new paper out? Um, There's a paper on the archive preprint server that contains evidence that these supernova are formed at least two different ways. So this is a theory that's been floating around for the last couple of years. People have theorized that you can get these supernova to form either by having two white dwarf stars merge 
Or you can have a white dwarf that starts pulling material off a bigger companion star and the white dwarf becomes so dense that then it explodes. So scientists had only seen evidence of the first type, the two white dwarfs merging. You know, basically the two white dwarfs completely obliterate each other and they don't leave much mess behind just a supernova. No extra material, really. But now they've seen evidence of the second type of supernova, which is when the white dwarf pulls material off the companion star and then explodes. So that leaves a whole bunch of evidence behind. Um, The companion star survives the explosion and then material ejected from the supernova hits that companion star and it lights up. So that's what they've seen. So now there's finally some observational evidence that there's a second way to make one of these things. So now that we know that these so-called standard candles aren't as uniform as we thought, does that call into question these results that we had before, you know, that the the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate? Nobody told us that it calls into question those results. Scientists have found a way to compensate for, you know, small variations in brightness between standard candles. But what they said was, now that they know this, they can develop better corrections and their results can be more precise. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Make sure to check out all the latest science news at nature.com forward slash news or at Nature News on Twitter. That's all for this week. But in case you are hoping for some eclipse coverage, don't miss our video all about the lessons eclipses have taught us over the centuries. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. You'll also spot a brand new animation there, looking at possible new treatments for critical limb ischemia, a serious circulation condition. No show next week as the summer holidays draw to a close, but we'll be back on your podcast feeds on the 7th of September. Until then, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.